This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 173 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is, I would argue, the most important figure in the history of comedy. The man who created NBC's Saturday Night Live back in 1975 and has served as its producer or executive producer for all but five years since, and who also currently serves as executive producer of the Peacock Network's late-night programs The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon and Late Night with Seth Meyers, and of the IFC Variety sketch series Documentary Now and Portlandia, the legendary Lorne Michaels. Michaels, who is 72, was born in Canada, where he was raised and where his sense of humor was formed. He ventured into comedy at summer camps and in high school. He co-wrote, directed, and performed in a review featuring comedy and music while an undergrad at the University of Toronto. And, after graduating in 1966, he and his friend Hart Pomerantz went to work doing political satire for CBC Radio, and also wrote jokes on the side for other comedians, including Woody Allen, Dick Cavett, and Joan Rivers. Michael's first jobs in TV were writing for, appropriately enough, NBC Variety Shows, First, The Beautiful Phyllis Diller Show, and then, after it got canceled, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, which was the highest-rated program on TV at the time, and for which Michaels received his first Emmy nomination for writing in 1969. Subsequently, he briefly returned to the CBC, and then wrote for a couple of Lily Tomlin comedy specials, one of which, Lily, brought him his first Emmy win for writing in 1974. That same year, when Michaels was just 29, his life and the trajectory of comedy history changed forever. Dick Ebersole, NBC's newly appointed head of late night, had been charged with filling a 90-minute block on the network's Saturday evening schedule, which had opened up when Johnny Carson, then the host of The Tonight Show, had demanded that the network stop airing weekend reruns of his nightly late-night show so that they could be used instead when he took off weeknights. NBC initially intended to fill the time slot with a bunch of different TV pilots, the best of which might be picked up for primetime and Ebersole asked Michaels to pitch one. Michaels proposed a variety show, and shortly thereafter, when the network abandoned the idea of a bunch of shows in favor of just one, Michaels was the one they gravitated towards. The young, then-LA-based Michaels flew to New York and met with network suits, won their green light, relocated his life to the Big Apple, and on October 11, 1975, almost exactly 42 years ago, oversaw the first broadcast of what, at the time, was called NBC's Saturday Night, 
because ABC had a show on the air at the same time called Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. Two years later, following the cancellation of Cosell's show, Michael's show was renamed Saturday Night Live. Over the decades since, an incredible parade of talent has passed through SNL, bringing laughter and joy to people the world over. I'm talking about folks like Chevy Chase, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner, Al Franken, Lorraine Newman, Jane Curtin, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Chris Farley, Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, Norm MacDonald, Mike Myers, Molly Shannon, Daryl Hammond, Maya Rudolph, Will Ferrell, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Tracy Morgan, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, and many others. But the show's one constant, apart from its general format and a few long-serving crew members, has been Michaels, who, accepting the five years that he spent away from the show between 1980 and 1985, has never missed a Saturday night when the show was on the air. Remarkably, Saturday Night Live is as strong today as ever. Its 42nd season, which aired between October of 2016 and May of 2017, and the last four episodes of which were the first in its history to air live coast-to-coast as opposed to just on the East Coast, was its most watched in 23 years. And, headed into September's Emmys, SNL is tied for the most nominations of all shows on TV, not just variety sketch shows, with 22, more than it ever has garnered before, including an unprecedented four for supporting acting and five for guest acting. Over the years, Michaels personally has accumulated 81 nominations and 14 wins, and the show, 221 noms and 45 wins. But the show hasn't won a Top Variety Series award since 1993. That bizarre streak almost certainly will come to an end this year. My interview with Michaels, his first in a year, took place in his office on the ninth floor of 30 Rockefeller Plaza, which has a window looking down onto the fabled Studio 8H from which SNL always has emanated. That, by the way, is why, in the background, you'll intermittently hear the team behind this summer's Weekend Update specials and the SNL band rehearsing. Over the course of our conversation, Michaels and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how 42 years ago the show initially took shape and began evolving, and why Michaels didn't feel proud of it until its 25th anniversary show. What he acknowledges as accurate, and doesn't, about his much-discussed behavior at auditions and his day-to-day management style. What it was like working with Donald Trump when the future president hosted the show in 2004 and 2015, and how the run-up to and aftermath of his election has impacted the show, How Michaels feels about the idea of retirement and what he would like to happen with SNL after he's gone, plus much more. So, without further ado, live from New York, it's Lorne Michaels. Mr. Michaels, thanks so much for doing this. Why did the show start emanating out of New York and why was it live? The decision to go live, I think, was Herb Schlosser, who was then running the network. Dick Ebersole, you know, had sort of recruited me and we worked closely together at the beginning and there was Herb wanted a show to come from New York and and very similar or in some way like the live television that had been so big a part of New York in the in the 50s. How would it have changed things if the show were to be recorded and then polished and then aired? Is there something that would be lost? Well that's what yeah I mean for me because I'd been doing variety shows out there and when you're doing a pilot your most conservative impulses come out. I mean, everybody advises you, we'll fix that when we get on air. So I sort of knew that live just sounded to me like we were going right to the audience. And that 
there would be the audience would see it the same time the network saw it and I sort of knew that there were a lot of people out there like me and that I'd recently come from the audience so I just thought if I can get directly there that it would be better so I, I wasn't frightened of live I'd never done live before other than stage yeah so when that first episode went on the air in in October 75 uh-huh. was the structure of the show or the way you went about doing it any different than the way you guys approach it today Oh, well, many things. First of all, we, you know, to some extent, I knew what I was doing, but in the larger sense, I didn't know what mm-hmm. I was doing. So I thought we had all the ingredients. We just didn't have the recipes. So I thought we would do three shows a month, which was what the fourth week would be, a show called Weekend, which came out of the news department, which was a, a really good show. And I thought we'll never be able to write 90 minutes a week. So the middle show could be music. There'd always be music in the variety format, but it would go more into music. And so George Carlin was booked for the first show, which was a, a, the network was happy with. And Paul Simon did the second show. And Rob Reiner, Penny Marshall, who came as well, were doing the third show. So in the first show, I had things, more variety elements. Andy yeah. Kaufman doing Mighty Mouse. Valerie Bromfield was on. There was a short film by Albert Brooks. There was two musical acts. There was update, but it was just chevy. Well, I want to actually ask you about that yeah. because I read something that early on or at the outset, you had actually, you have a history of performing in college and along the way, had you contemplated being a part of the show as a performer through Weekend Update? Yeah, I, I'd done that kind of thing, you know, in Canada and the show I was doing in Canada. And when Dick and I were showing things that we thought could be, you know, part of the show, the news segment was was part of it and we showed a clip that I'd done with that Earl Pomerantz had written which was Dutch puck disease it was a very <laughs> Canadian uh, thing but it was a sort of mock documentary oh, and yeah. I think it was understood that I was going to do that but as we got closer to the show I thought I won't be able to be able to cut people between dress and air and sort of leave my segment in so I thought <laughs> yeah, be it just wouldn't be fair that's the Canadian part well, I've been lucky enough to see a few of your rehearsals, and I see you out there running around doing a million things, but it's hard for me to always determine what's going on, and I wonder if you can just explain for somebody who wonders what does it mean to be executive producer, what do you see as your primary responsibilities? I think you, you know, I, I say this every week, that we don't go on because we're ready, we go on because it's 1130, <laughs> and so you're starting on Monday, and, you know, generally we've done if we've done a show this Saturday before, everyone's just fried. But we have to have that meeting on Monday and, and begin with, you know, everyone, cast and writers and uh, and production departments all in the same office with the host and sort of introduce everybody. And then I go around the room and ask people what they're working on. Some have ideas. <laughs> Some just ha- wrote something down. They weren't sure whether it was something they were supposed right. to buy. But it just is a signal that the week is starting. Then, as now, the host will go around to the writer's room to teach the writers, and, and sometimes they can do something that the writer doesn't know, or the writer say, can you do this kind of accent? And things begin to percolate at that point. And also, people hear other people's ideas at the Monday meeting, and sometimes if they don't have one, they kind of think, I, I'd like to work on that with you. So, And then the performers are writing as well. So that's that's been a constant. Tuesday night goes late. I do a, a dinner with the cast 
some of the writers and the host just to sort of normalize things. And then it goes late from the 70s on. It yeah. tends to go back. <laughs> it's only because writers know deadlines. They know which what is the real deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you say, I need everything in, because there were many attempts to organize it yeah. early on. And people say, well, the deadline is 10 o'clock Tuesday because production needs that amount of time to... But a writer knows it's really 3 o'clock Wednesday, and so they're going to keep going right up to the deadline. And I think having come out of a writing background, I sort of was more sympathetic to that than not. I generally have this kind of thing playing in the background. I think that there was a sense with it that you wanted to make sure that everyone was covered, all the cast were covered, that we had enough topical, that we weren't doing something we'd done before, and we were sort of pushing it and not knowing what we could do and what we couldn't do. And as the the one thing in the original design, the sort of host every week, was a different kind of writing challenge. And that was uh, the idea, and we didn't know what the limits of that could be, whether you could just... I think somewhere in the first season, I think I called Broderick Crawford. <laughs> when he was at home in Ohio, and we'd grown up on, on his show, and he came in. But it was very sort of made up as we go but I think the thing we didn't think or I didn't think through was it or expect that was that the cast would become the stars of the show yeah 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 but standing next to a movie star or it just elevated them yeah so that was a sort of the nice nice result of it. but at the end of the day if you had to if you had to just summarize essentially what your role in the machine you know cog in the machine is here it's making sure everybody else is getting along or it's pl- how, how would it's, you summarize? it's what are the ideas what yeah. are we working on right uh, in the 70s there was just producer credit that's right. all I, right. and right. Uh, in the five years that I was gone the whole world changed yeah. and, but it was just producer we didn't have a head writer we had people who were senior writers but they weren't billed that way so it was just produced by written by directed by I think that because I have a background as a writer I can hear ideas and probably in, in the 70s I met with everyone about their piece and right. we'd talk it down and I would discourage certain things if I thought yeah. they weren't going to work or I'd tend to emphasize maybe you could put this cast member in that but it was always about it was going to work or not work on Wednesday and then whether it was going to work right. or not work on Saturday and I think that we've had you know a lot of luck because we were in New York and because we were there on a weekend and because we were a late night culture we've been able to keep the read through a sort of honest room mm-hmm. so it doesn't have a lot of people with another agenda yeah. either network or managers or whatever so it just plays and we all know that it didn't work or we know that it, it worked right. and so something that you had no hope for suddenly because so it's always adjusting yeah. to what just works so in terms of the task my job is just sort of get it to the finish line. Yeah. When you're over the years when you've been scouting folks at Second City or somewhere else uh-huh, and then there, when you I bring them in for weekend, yeah. yeah, really? Yeah. That's what you, so when yeah. you do that and then when you bring in the lucky few to come actually audition for you here, is there something that you're always looking for? I think originally I was just looking for people that I thought were funny and and original and that weren't on television, you know, that sort of uh, there was something more honest about it. I think that now, I was just in Chicago last weekend with uh, three or four people from the show, and we looked at three different shows, and I think we're doing auditions next Wednesday, screen test auditions. Oh, yeah. 
And there'll be 20 to 25 people because some will come from L.A. auditions mm -hmm. and all that. But I'll be looking this year more for what strengths we don't have or what writing parts we don't, you know, we don't have. Anybody who can play that kind of part. The, the rumor is it's tough to make you laugh at an audition. Is that true? Why would that be? Jimmy sort of perpetrated <laughs> that. No, no, I laugh. I don't think you can be in comedy and, and not be somebody who enjoys right. laughing. Right. I guess when you started, you were essentially a contemporary of most of the cast. Totally. Yeah, younger than some. Younger yeah. than some. So as that's, you know, the cast all have always, I guess, roughly been around the same age, like, what, 20s, 30s? Chevy was a year. I was 30 when we started, and Chevy, I just turned 30, and, and Chevy was uh, a year older than I. But I think Danny was 22. I think Gilda was 23. John was 23, I think. And they'd all done Second City. Yeah. And I'd worked with Danny in Canada. I knew Gilda. And Chevy was originally hired as a writer, and he and I would write together with Michael O'Donoghue, who was uh, who they had worked together on the Lampoon radio yeah. show. So there was an ease about it. And I think there's a moment when you cut somebody's piece, particularly if you've just had dinner with them, <laughs> it's not fun. Yeah. But I think people accepted that all I wanted to do was make the show the best possible show. Yeah. Just reading some of the history of the place and some of these oral histories and things that have been done, it seems like I want. I just want to ask you about your general management approach, if, if yeah. that's the way to describe it, because it sounds like, and I've had employers that I think do a similar thing, you, you're not somebody who gives out fawning approval easily, right? You Is that because, I've, I've suspected in my experience, that's because if people don't get that, they work harder for it. No, I, I don't think it's even a motivational thing. I think it's we just don't know. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The piece that, the, the worst thing that happens to a first season cast member is they're suddenly, they're in four pieces after read-through. They've called everyone they know to say, this is going to be my week. And then they're just standing around in good nights because all four of the pieces right. were cut. <laughs> and and it is we wouldn't have chosen them if we didn't think they were going to work, but right. you just don't know till you get in front of an audience. And there's 350 people who come in, and we don't know them. And when the cast are hot, the way the cast is this year, mm -hmm. then they have a bias, toward, you know, so they can go to a higher level because they know that the audience is with them on it. Right. And they want them to take those chances. And I think those periods are the most fun. The, the least fun is introducing eight or nine new, new people. Yeah. Who, uh, <laughs> well, one one last pre-2016-17 question yeah. is, I saw one article where you said the first time that you really felt proud of SNL was at its 25th anniversary show. How could that possibly be? You guys had had so much success already. I think that there's never a show where you, you leave going, well, that one was great. You just <laughs> uh, I, If you do what I do, you're just always focused on the mistakes yeah. and what didn't work. And that late camera cut or that joke that the setup suddenly didn't make it to cards or somebody who'd been brilliant at dress in that part and then walks in on a different foot and the timing is off. And, <laughs> and so you're always aiming for it to be the best. You want it to peak on air, right. but sometimes it peaks earlier. In the 70s, people would call me on Sundays, which was a nightmare for me because <laughs> I'd been out too late and, right. and, and it was sort of raw. And they'd say, uh, I saw the show. And I go, yeah. And they go, listen, you know, that piece with the did you think that was funny? And I go, well, it, it was two hours before we went on the air. It right. wasn't on air. Right. But because we don't have a laugh track, right. it's very clear when something doesn't work. And so 
there's an honesty to it. That's the good news. Is there a difference? Though? Why would it play differently in rehearsal than on the live show? That's the part, that's the mystery. Yeah. You really don't know. And that's why you can never trust it. So audiences are different. I remember when I was writing for comedians early in my career, mm-hmm. I think Woody Allen or somebody said that there's like two nights out of the seven or eight shows you do, there's, there's two that don't work. Really? And that, and that was him sort of peak stand-up. I, Weird. I, you just, it just doesn't ignite. Yeah. And I think living through that is is what makes comedians comedians. Yeah. yeah. So what was it about season 42 that made it click to the extent that it was, I guess, the most watched in 23 years? That's got to yeah. make you feel good. I think it had the same quality for me as the first season. Yeah? Because we really didn't know where we were going. We, we had the things that we knew we did well and we knew we were going to do the debates and it was just a season that I wanted to make sure we got right. And uh, when we started figuring out what to do about Trump, I sort of sensed that he was going to be the candidate obviously early. Mm-hmm. But I think Kate was brilliant as Hillary. Mm-hmm. So it, it became a question of how do you pull that away? Daryl, who'd done Trump in the 2000s, was... You know, brilliant at it, but that was a different Trump, mm-hmm. you know, and more Paula Pell's take on it from the time. And now we were, there was another whole other level to it happening. And I, I wanted someone with real power and yeah. strength. And I was talking to Tina Fey about it, and she said, well, the person who's the most like him was Alec. <laughs> and Alec is a friend of mine, and we were playing tennis over the summer. And I said, you know, I think you should do Trump. <laughs> and he said, I can't. I, we're having a baby. I've, I've got... Uh, I've already committed to Rob Reiner for a movie, and I've got these match game things I've got to do. And I go, well, it's the most important election of our lifetime, potentially, mm-hmm. and it's the male lead, and it's only five shows. Right. That's You, you knew know, already it was oh, only going to be five. I mean, there wasn't anyone, yeah. particularly in this building, that thought there was yeah, any exactly. chance. That, uh, <laughs> and so I thought, and he went, well, I can't do it. And I went, once again, it's the most important election of our lifetime. It's five shows, and you have the male lead. So... On the way home, he called me and uh, he'd reconsidered. Uh, yeah. And so there was a lot of he the amount of stress that he, they were having their third child. They would then have three under three. Yeah, he'd committed to this movie. He, you know, so we were constantly moving stuff around. And I always thought that for for me because I know Alex so well, I think I was thinking he'd be great at it, and he was thinking I don't have a Trump. You know, and when and I we didn't really see it till the day of. Yeah. We saw the wig, we saw tests and all that, but it became. I just know he can do that. Yeah. But whereas an actor would be riddled with doubt. Had you was the only precedent for him, and then also for Melissa McCarthy doing Spicer, uh-huh. in terms of bringing somebody who's not a part of the cast and having them show up throughout the season yeah. as somebody. Was it only Tina who had done that before with Peyton? No, and Tina was the same way, just cast by the audience. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, people would say, well, Tina Fey, and I go, well, you know, she's doing her own series now. And right. That was three years ago. Right. But the audience doesn't stay, you know, keep up with the cast changes. Right, right, In right. the way that they might. But I think we'd done it. Aykroyd would come in and, and do Bob Dole. People had, had done things. Where it would happen throughout yeah. the season. And Melissa came from Ken Sublette and her having a conversation, and she thought, I can do this. 
you know? And uh, when you saw the wig and the makeup, you went, oh my God. And she just blew it away, obviously. Yeah. You, know? you guys did your final four episodes actually live, live coast live, to yeah. coast. What motivated you to do that? Was Were you hearing from people on the other coast that they were getting spoilers? But there were two, two uh, significant reasons. One was Bob Greenblatt wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, two was that social media was so on the show that you couldn't if you were following Twitter you were hearing about it before you could see it and so uh, and we'd be divided into two days there'd be a lot of action on Saturday and then another group on Sunday and it just seemed like that's what's driving things and to get people to stay tuned for a broadcast it's better if it's live and they're seeing it at the same time. So is this going to be the way of think, the future? I think, yeah, I yeah. think it's. I think it is. Okay. Yeah. We uh, had we had standards fears because the way I could live with myself over the forty two years was <laughs> uh, that this is going on a quarter to one. You right. know, because at some point I was still thinking about what my mother would think. Right. But it it just it seemed to be all right. Yeah. There was no real complaints about it. What does it tell you that the show wound up tied for the most? Emmy nominations of all shows, forget about Variety, uh-huh. uh, including, I think it was unprecedented for you guys, four supporting acting and five guest acting. Does that mean something to you, in the, the Emmys I, over the years? I, you know, yeah, it does. I mean, it, it was a season, there's a, an interesting statistic or fact, which was that when we were doing those four shows live, we were either the number one or number two show on television, mm-hmm. on all of television. Mm-hmm. And we had the same number that we'd had when we were doing Pale and McCain, Obama thing. And in 08, we wouldn't have been in the top 30 shows. Just, you know, it's just the broadcast is now fragmented more. And so, again, who had any idea that it was going to be this kind of season? And we'd be on an opening and then Trump would do something on Friday and you'd have to change it. And then something else would happen late Friday night, you'd have to change it again. And so the nimbleness of it meant that we were good at it, but it also meant that you're paying attention like seven days a week and it's like exhausting. (laughs) I bet. Yeah. So with the with the remaining time, I hope we can do something that's sort of just the first thing that comes to your mind in response to a few things. And I've got time because I've got I mean, if, if you want to go long, oh, good, right? okay. good, thank yeah, you, but, thank but, you. Sure, I believe it's the case. Have you never missed a Saturday night? No, but I don't like to talk about. You don't. It okay, we will. Okay, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm happy. All I would true. say, yeah, yeah. Can I just ask, like, how does that affect other parts of life? You know, does it make things tough? If, if I had a child born on a Saturday, I wouldn't have made the show. You wouldn't have. Made, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's the biggest way in which comedy itself has changed since SNL started? I think that there was a, a sort of, you know, television was the big mass medium when I was growing up. And so movies had been liberated to be, you know, they could go to a smaller audience and they could be more adventurous and more pure. And music had, had you know, particularly in the early 70s, was really the dominant thing that mm-hmm. most people my age were being influenced by. And television was the last, you know, because there was essentially two networks and then eventually a third and then a fourth. But that was really... You know, so we came on as a number one show and we've been number one for the entire run. And I think that there was something about establishing the fact that we were going to be honest about what we did and also current. I mean, the people in the cast looked like people on the street, you know. But is just society's response to sorts of comedy different? Like, is it a more cynical world that you have to play to now? Is it a, you know, basically is 
Do you see more? First of all, there's a lot more of it. Yeah. 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 So, but I think there's something about, you know, the nightly shows, which are mostly monologue jokes. They're more like newspapers used to be. They're the day's events. Because we were on Saturday, we should have had some thought go into what really is the story of the week or what's what's the, what's the thing you want to see this just now. Right. And uh, I think performance has always been what we're about, yeah. whether it's just pure comedy, which is... And, and also, we're a political show, but we're, all, we're at our core a comedy show and a variety show as well. Yeah. So if Prince is on, you're... you're kind of happy that that's happening right. too you know if Farrell and Hammond had not portrayed Bush and Gore as they did on SNL yeah. would we have had the same result I, I'm not sure you know I, I no one reads the media as avidly as the media so that got written but I, I'm not sure you know really I, it, it's nice to think that there's that we have influence and I think on some level some part of society maybe we do, but right. I think there's so many things that go into the decision, right. particularly when you're alone in a voting booth. Well, with Trump, I guess he last hosted back in 2015. I don't know if he had previously done it. Yeah, but he, was... he did. Yeah, he did it in like 05, 06, somewhere in there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So or whenever The Apprentice was sort of peaking. What's he like to work with over the course of a week? I've literally never seen him laugh. He definitely likes to keep control, but he was completely polite, open to things. He was here the whole time. He didn't have an entourage. Mm -hmm. Colin Joe says, you know, you'd walk into the dressing room and he was running for president. Yeah. And he'd just be there. Yeah. You know, and we could talk to him about what you were working on. And so in that sense, there were no, uh, there was really nothing that became like an issue that way, except that things, because it was still in the polite period of the campaign. Right, right. You know, he was running and the debates were going on. Right. You know. If Putin took down the internet or the or the whole place went up on fire. I know you uh -huh. could only save one episode, tape uh -huh. of one episode or footage. Was there one that really stands out to you as being particularly great? In each period, yeah, yeah. probably. But not. there's no perfect show. There's just right. moments that captured something. And, and I honestly believe, and maybe it's the, what I have to believe, but I honestly believe even in, in periods that were not celebrated, there's always something yeah, in the yeah. show that's worth watching. Which cast member over the years most consistently made you laugh? Played to your sense of humor. Oh God, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you feel I feel differently about the first five years than I feel, but you know, we've just gotten better at it. And what the was cast, the first five years? That what separated? What set that apart? I, I think because that we were all peers, mm -hmm. because we were making it up as we went along, because no one knew where it was leading. When Chevy left, and he'd been the core of everything, particularly with me, because we wrote together, but. I think to watch John and Gilda step up and Danny, you know, like the more you'd see Lorraine getting better, you just could tell that it was the show itself. Yeah. What's the one part of the show that you've never been able to crack to the extent that you'd like? That is there one thing that you're still trying to get right? You want to make sure the first 10 minutes work. Yeah. Yeah, because then you can hold the audience. When the opening misfires, particularly a dress, you're going, you sometimes will put something else up there. But the more you have a cast that really, you know, I mean, first of all, they have to be at their most brilliant at 1130 at night in a, in a skyscraper in New York City. Freezing um, studio. Yeah, <laughs> at, in a television studio and be loose. And you sort of, your whole metabolism starts to head in that direction. And I think that when you see them soaring, just taking it off the paper and making it into something else, that's, that's always the best time for me. If you could go back and change one thing from over the years about the 
show or even just the the culture something uh-huh. what would it be one thing that you wish you had done differently over the years oh there's lots of things I, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah but on a I, big I, picture scale I think when I was younger I thought that because I was pushing myself so hard I could push others that hard yeah and that turned out not to be <laughs> it's a false uh, uh, you push yourself hard because you believe in what you're doing but right. people move at their own and can make their contribution any way they, they can and I became a much easier person to work with. <laughs> not to not to harp on a painful part of this, I guess, but could could anything have saved Belushi and Farley? Well, you know, I can tell you this part of it, which is, yeah, they were on a trajectory that wasn't good, obviously, but when they were working full time, uh, because letting down everyone else is just a, a thing you don't want to do. So while they were here. They were all, yeah. that was all good. And yeah. I think the discipline of it and the pressure of it and the team aspect of it just become, in in Hollywood is just a harder thing because most of the people you work with work for you. Yeah, you know, yeah right. It's a different thing. Which SNL cast member or writer's post-SNL activities have most surprised you? I, I think I can guess, but I, I'll i leave it to you. I don't know. I, I, I wasn't here for Eddie Murphy and right. he did Great stuff. Do you ever think you'd have a U.S. senator? <laughs> yeah, no, that, <laughs> who still calls him with ideas. Yeah, by really? The way. Oh, yeah, that's I great. Know, which doesn't mean he doesn't love his country. Right. You know, the people that have gone on to movie careers that are great, Will Ferrell is a perfect example mm-hmm. of it. He's just, the audience connected to him, he's brilliant, and he doesn't have to be something he, he isn't. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's, you, you know who he is, and you trust it, and he's funny. How do you budget your time? But when you've got your late night shows, and uh-huh. I know you're, you've got a couple that are also nominated against SNL in uh-huh. the variety sketch, Portlandia. I and tend to, I tend to only, I have the luxury of only working with people that I already trust, trust and, yeah. and and so, and also at Thirty Rock we have elevators, so you know <laughs> Jimmy's down on the sixth floor, right. and I pop in there, you know, three or four times a week, and. We'll, just before the monologue, when they're going over the monologue, just to check in, and then he and I will—we had dinner last night. Yeah. It, it's a—you're waiting for the person who really is the core creative person to learn how to do it, and yeah. once they learn how to do it, you tiptoe out of the room right. and you're around if there's trouble. But it's their show, you know. I mean, with Tina and Robert Carlock, both of whom worked here and were, you know, brilliant here. Thirty Rock was. It took a while for it to hit a groove, but once it hits the groove, you just kind of, they understand that I have a show to go back right, to. Right. So. Do you ever think about retiring? I'm sure many, many of your friends are retired. Does it tempt you at all? I think that the thing that stops aging to the extent that I you know, have any thought on it at all is, is just feeling useful and, and busy. You know, I've seen my children grow up, my, my, you know, and they're the biggest part of my life. My, my family is... It's really that. But I think I'm just one of those people who has to work. And when you feel you're in the middle of it and there's 20 decisions that have to be made rapidly and all that, I, that sort of makes me feel alive and it makes me feel that I'm doing something that's valuable. And the last one is just eventually we all are going to go to the studio in the sky. And I wonder for you, at, you know, many years from now when, when that happens, what would you like to happen with SNL? I'd like, uh, you know, to still be, in an old phrase, the loyal opposition. You just yeah. want it to be challenging. But to continue. Author- yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. And there are enough people around who would know how to do that, I think. And I think that there's something about this kind of work that attracts a certain kind of person, you know. And it's a hard, a physically hard show to do, and you have to be in shape for it. And watching it doesn't qualify you for doing it. <laughs> so the satisfying thing for me is watching people come into their own. Suddenly they're out there and you're not worried anymore. That, you know, even if the changes are coming to them late— they know where they are and they know who they are. And that right. that's always an amazing thing to watch. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.